everyone. This is the Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime suspense and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I bring on my guest, I'll just remind you that the Crime Cafe has two ebooks for sale the nine book box set and the short story anthology. You can find the buy links for both on my website, debbiemack.com, under the Crime Cafe link. You can also get a free copy of either book if you become a Patreon supporter. You'll get that and much more if you support the podcast on Patreon, along with our eternal gratitude for doing so. But first, let me put in a good word for Blueberry Podcasting. I've been using Blueberry Podcasting as my hosting service for my podcast for years, and it's one of the best decisions I ever made. They provide great service. You're in complete control of your own podcast. You never have to leave your own website. There is a plugin that you can use to incorporate Blueberry and uh, distribution through your website. So it's a great service that has taken a lot of the work of podcasting out for me. And I find for that reason that it's a a company that I can get behind 100% and say, you should try this if you want to podcast. Try out Blueberry. It doesn't require a long-term contract. It's, It's just a great company, period. And I am a pot, I am a Blueberry affiliate, so there's that. <laughs> and did I mention that they have free technical support by email, video, and phone? Yes, you can actually reach a human being there. I'll say no more. Hi, everyone. Today I have a guest making his second appearance on the podcast. A retired police officer, he hails from the great state of Oregon. The author of more than 30 novels, including the River City series and the Charlie 316 series. He also hosts his own podcast, Wrong Place, Right Crime, which I have had the pleasure of being on. (laughs) My guest today is Frank Spiro. Hi, Frank. Welcome back, and thanks for being here. Hey, Debbie. Great to be uh, back again. Excellent. Wonderful. It's good to see you. Um, You seem to be um, making something of a career out of writing collaborative novels and series. (laughs) Can you uh, write them faster than you would if you were writing them on your own, or is it about the same? Oh, I think it's faster. Um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, you are, um, you know, you're, you're only writing about half of the first draft. So, um, you know, you're, that, that's so it's faster, you know. Uh, but the other thing is, is that when you're working in, in the bigger piece is when you're working with someone else, um, there's a certain synergy that, that kicks in and, and you really gain momentum. And so, when you get the piece back and it's your turn to write something, um, you, 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 you're energized and you also don't want to keep your partner waiting. Um, in some cases, uh, the person I'm working with, they're not 
working on anything else, uh, at least not in the first draft stage. And so I'm kind of holding them up while we're doing this in a way is how I feel about it. So I want to get it back to them as quick as possible. Um, but I think it would happen either way because there's just, you just get that really strong momentum going that you're, you know, you're building something great and it, it just, it goes really fast. I mean, uh, Charlie 316 took like three weeks and, and it was a hundred thousand word draft. I mean, that, to me, that was just, that blew my mind when we got to the end of it and you looked at how long it had taken. Oh my gosh. That was for a first draft, right? Yeah. And you know, the thing of it is, is it's, it's the first draft, but the way that the process works, it, it's a pretty tight first draft because it's been essentially edited twice, <laughs> once by each of us throughout the process. So, um, but yeah, it's still, still technically a first draft. Well, that's fantastic. Three weeks. Wow. That's a bit of an aberration, but that's a good example of how quickly things can happen. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, um, would most of them be like that? <laughs> most of them are like that, not quite as fast, but but I, uh, I there hasn't been one that that for uh, in which that first draft lagged or or dragged. They've all gone quickly. You know, sometimes the editing process has gone just as quickly. Other times, it's it's taken a little bit longer, and we we've gone about it differently, or we've been more uh, methodical, or taken our time, or other projects of pushed it on the shelf briefly and then we pull off and get back to work on it or, uh, or, or when it's ready to go, deciding how to approach it, whether to send it to an agent, a publisher, or to publish it independently, that's a stage that maybe it's sat for a while. Um, but in, in each of the cases, and I think I've done, uh, I'd have to go back and count, but it's at least 12 books. Uh, every one of them went quick in the, in the, uh, initial first draft stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was curious about how many books you work on at the same time this way, if you do work on other books at the same time, and how you release the books. Do you do a release on one series, then another, or do you sort of alternate between the series? How does that work? Um, so I, I tend to not work on more than one book at a time in the first draft mode. I've kind of learned to uh, on a creative level to try to stay in the same skin. Uh, and, and so that might be another reason why it goes pretty quickly because, you know, if I have something else to get to, I know I need to get through this to get to that. And, and, and I can't get to that till we're done. So let's get busy, you know? But uh, I, I don't feel that same restriction when it comes to editing. Um, I feel like uh, that's a little easier to do regardless of, of, of what else you're doing. And so at any given time, I might be working on one book, um, whether that's my own or a collaboration. Um, editing uh, another book, again, could be a collaboration, could be one of my, my solo works. And I might be be reading, you know, beta, you know, beta reading, doing a deep critique for for one of my friends or co-authors on a completely different book that I had, you know, that I didn't write or didn't have any uh, input on. And and so I, I can do that with the editing. I can work on multiple things at once, um, but uh, try to 
try to stay on just the one with the uh, with the actual first draft. Um, and then your second question you're talking about, uh, can you clarify on that? I want to make sure I answer it correctly. Um, I was curious about release schedules, basically. Mm-hmm. You have several series, and I didn't right. know whether you released all the books in one series before you went on to the next one or if you mixed mm-hmm. them up. Uh, well, historically, it's been kind of uh, staggered. Uh, initially, I just was writing the River City series, my kind of my main series. Mm-hmm. And I had several uh, books in that series come out before I had written anything in another series. Uh, but once I started writing multiple series, um, I, I kind of started lily padding from one to the other and, and trying to kind of give them all a little bit of love. Um, but it's also dictated by what story is, is, is kind of, has kind of forced its way to the top of my consciousness. And I might have notes. Well, I do. I have notes for, for half a dozen different books in, 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 in different series. But which one gets written next sometimes is the product of which one's screaming the loudest at me. Mm-hmm. You know, which fictional character refuses to be uh, denied uh, that might be the one that gets worked on next. And um, and essentially, as soon as they're finished in terms of, you know, the editing process and the book cover and, and, and all the other things that go along with that, if I'm releasing them independently, I try to get a, get them out um, as soon as they're ready uh, with a little bit of strategy. But, uh, but, but frankly, I don't put a lot of stock in uh, long pre-order periods or or, or let's time it with Valentine's Day. I mean, you know, or, or, or something like that. Um, my attitude is, is, hey, the book is ready. Um, you know, the only thing I might take into consideration is, hey, I don't want to release it in competition with another of my own releases or my co-author's releases. So I might be strategic in that sense. Hmm. Uh, but I feel like if, if I'm the reader and you're the writer, I mean, I want the next Sam McRae book as soon as you're done with it. I don't want to wait six months, you know, so get that baby out there, you know, I, I try to be quiet with my own stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I take it that you are generally the one who comes up with the idea for the, the series or book or have the collaborators come to you with ideas for the um, series? Yeah. The main uh, idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, my collaborators have done a lot of heavy lifting on these series. Um, just to, uh, to give you an example, uh, the first uh, series that I ever collaborated on um, was, uh, I believe, was the Anya trilogy. Well, now it's actually got a, a prequel, so it's a quadrilogy um, <laughs> with, with, with Jim Wilski. And that one, we kind of, I think we kind of, tailored that one up together that was pretty mutual um and then the uh although i will say that jim came up with uh three out of the four titles and i think all four of the locations and settings and and, and stuff and um and in, in all cases debbie the the collaborators i've worked with it's been a true 50 50 split nobody's been senior or junior at all uh, but but in terms of the genesis of the ideas, um, when I did the the uh, Bricks and Cam Job series with uh, Eric Beatner, um, he came up with that premise. He wanted to do mm-hmm. this this two hitmen uh, idea, uh, and then we went from there. 
and um, working with with Colin Conway in the Charlie Three Sixteen series, which is the most recent collaboration that that had come out. That's a four book arc, but when he came to me with the first idea, he had a very solid idea and a, a premise and a, a basic structure already in place. And really, he was coming to me because of my experience uh, in my career in law enforcement, um, having been involved in executive level leadership. He, he, there were things happening in that book that, that he wanted to peek behind that curtain. And he'd really never been in that room very much, uh, and certainly not in that role. And so he's like, hey, I mean, I want your expertise on this. Um, and so that's that's how I got brought in almost as a consultant kind of initially. That's great. Um, but uh, so, yeah, my co-authors have been fantastic. They've done easily 50% of the heavy lifting on every single one of the, the books. Well, it's fantastic. It's nice that you could have the idea or for the premise. That's really what I was thinking about, the big picture mm-hmm. kind of what is the story about, or mm-hmm. they could, you know, either way. You know, you guys can work together. Um, has the pandemic affected you or your collaborators at all? Um, well, of course. I mean, just like it has everyone else. I mean, uh, uh, on a personal slash professional level, I mean, uh, I, I started writing, um, working on my writing career and podcasting full time at the end of 2017. Um, I had retired from law enforcement in 2013, and I was teaching leadership uh, pretty much full time um, after that for about four years. And so from what, 2018, 2019, and a little over two years, I was living at home, you know, had the house to myself all day, uh, just me and the dogs and the cat. And I was a hermit pretty much, right? I didn't deal with anybody except, uh, you know, my wife would come and go and uh, to work. And then the pandemic hit and it hit about a month after my stepson um, was staying with this, just kind of in a transitional period. He was moving from one job in one location to another. He's just going to stay here for about three weeks. And then bam, you know, the the, the pandemic hit um, and, and he was here for, ended up being, you know, till almost Thanksgiving, I think, or, or uh, something like that. I mean, you know, he kind of was locked in place. And then my wife, a teacher, she's suddenly teaching from home. And so this not very big house suddenly had three people in it full time all the time. Um, you know, and I, I have a podcast, so I'm trying to record stuff for that. And so everybody's having to tiptoe and I'm having to time it around when Christy's teaching her kids, cause she's teaching live and I'm having to tiptoe and be careful. And, and, and of course, Brian's trying to be as unobtrusive as possible. And we're all in this small house. And of course, everybody's worried about being sick. And do I go visit family? All the things I'm saying, I think probably all of your listeners experience something like that in this unprecedented times that that we've lived in. Um, What it didn't do really is, is stop me from being able to work on the written page or to, to be able to work with the people that I was collaborating with. I mean, uh, uh, Colin and I wrote uh, big chunks of the Charlie 316 series during the pandemic. Um, I wrote a book with uh, with Larry Kelter that is not released yet, but we wrote that and edited it um, and rewrote it during the pandemic. So, I was going to say, um, 
the potential for people to work together is so much greater now that people are using Zoom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if yeah. you want to work with somebody and have a almost a workshop atmosphere, you can do it. I think people got more comfortable with it too. I mean, uh, I mentioned Eric Beatner earlier. I wrote uh, three books with him, three entire books. We never spoke even on the phone, much less over Zoom. And and we finally met when I came on his podcast as a guest. That was the first time we'd ever spoken live, and which is just completely bizarre. Um, but uh, but the online world, I think, opened up for a lot of people when it became necessary, it became absolutely a requirement, and people, you know, were able to work from home. But uh, uh, in some ways, I'm sure it, was, it wasn't a big switch for me. I mean, I, I've been doing it, you know. Uh, since 2013 and exclusively since 2018, you know, working only on this kind of stuff. But uh, it was a big transition for someone like my wife trying to, to teach. And, and she had, a, she worked extreme. She's been working extremely hard uh, since March of, of 2020. And anybody who thinks teachers have just been sitting at home collecting a paycheck, um, well, this is probably a family show, so I won't express my true feelings on the matter. But, but they deserve a poke in the nose because they're they're ignorant. Um, I, Many I people believe... are ignorant. Yeah, I'm amazed at I'm amazed at how hard that she's worked. Um, it's basically been having to recreate her entire curriculum and learn a new delivery method, and and she's stuck with it. And and so the transition for me hasn't been nearly. Uh, that difficult because I was almost living the the uh, lockdown life, you know, self-imposed uh, prior to that. Believe uh, me, I understand that. <laughs> I, I know you do. I know I was, you do. Yeah, I mean, I was just pretty much at home, just doing this. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, but yeah, teachers. What people don't realize is that teachers aren't getting um, paid for those summers off either. That's another thing they don't realize. Just because they get a paycheck doesn't mean they're getting paid. I mean, they're paid for the nearly 10 months that they work each year. And then it's just prorated over a 12 month period because that's easier for it's It's actually easier for the government bookkeeping. uh, bookkeeping. Yeah, absolutely. Easier for the district. But yeah, there's a whole, it's funny. My, you know, I was a police officer for 20 years um, and, you know, she's been a teacher for, almost that long and when we first uh we knew each other since we were kids but but when we reconnected as adults and eventually when we got we got married and and we were spending all this time together um we got to talking about our careers and one of the things we both noticed was how many parallels there were between the two careers both of them being you know public service related and both of them um you know, being a vital function of society. And, and the other thing that we both noticed and talked about was how there's a lot of people out there who have misconceptions about our job and a lot of people who think they know exactly what our job is and how we should be doing it and aren't afraid to tell us that, you know. And and, and in the police realm, it's, I I guess it's, I, I saw CSI, so I know what's what. And <laughs> And in the teaching realm, it seems to be, hey, I went to school. I have a kid, so I know all, everything I need to know about it. And it's uh, it can be a little frustrating at times, to be to be honest with you. Oh you know? well, as a 
former attorney, I mean, as a lawyer who used to practice law, I know what it's like to be, um, to have one's career misrepresented, let's say, (laughs) or, you know, whatever. Um, And my husband is a retired DC firefighter. So I think I get where you're coming from. Yeah, I think firefighters suffer that too, although not, I don't think quite as much because they just have better PR and let's face it, you know, I mean, um, their job doesn't end up involving guns. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't require them to necessarily for their actions to be unpleasant for, for people. I mean, um, you know, for normal people out there, and I mean, when I mean normal, I mean, people who are involved in a lot of criminal behavior or, or to extremely unlucky i guess but for your average american the times that they see the police are when either they've done the stupidest thing they've ever done in their life or they've had the worst thing that's probably ever going to happen to them in their life just happen to them you know or they're in the middle of a crisis that doesn't happen every day and so it's these rare moments that are usually negative i mean um and then when the police come they're not necessarily making it better or fixing it. I mean, if you just screwed up, you're probably getting arrested. If something bad happened to you, you just got your house burglarized and the cops aren't going to show up with all your stuff in their trunk. It doesn't work that way. Um, You know, at least firefighters, they show up and somebody isn't feeling good. They take them to the hospital or something's on fire and they spray water on it, you know, and, and, and people thank them for it. And, and they have a great PR (laughs) I mean, they're great at PR too, you know, and, and there's always been that healthy, like brotherly sisterly rivalry between cops and and firefighters, you know, Um, ultimately they realize that that they're on the same team and, and, and get along. But of course there's, you know, used to tease the firefighters that the firefight creed was, uh, uh, you know, uh, eat till you're tired, sleep till you're hungry. You know, and uh, (laughs) she hang hang out at the fire station. But I'll tell you what, you know, that I got injured a couple of times on the job and it it wasn't lawyers who came and fixed me up. (laughs) It was was medics. It was the firefighters. So absolutely. uh, And I've had some really good friends who that's, you know, that's been their job. And so I admire them. Um, But people think they know what firefighters are all about. And they they really don't necessarily have the whole picture. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's see. Would you like to talk more about Charlie 316 or about your podcast? Um, I think Charlie 316, to be honest with you. you Tell us about it. The um, it's a it's a four book series. It's one of those series that uh, does have a beginning and an end. It's not open ended like most of my other uh, book series are. Um, I wrote it with Colin Conway, who I mentioned before, um, and he did come up with the idea and he, he brought it to me. And the more we talked about it and put some bone, uh, some meat on those bones and, and started working with it, 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 it took on a life of its own. But uh, the, the initial story is about a police officer who is a, just a model officer. He's a, a, a golden child of the department in the community. Um, you know, uh, good looking, great shape, family man, uh, tactically sound, hard worker, uh, you know, uh, beloved in the community. He gets into a shooting in chapter one, spoiler alert. Um, 
but he gets into a shooting in chapter one that immediately starts to look like it uh like it could be a, a bad incident uh the the uh, driver doesn't uh, have a weapon uh and has been shot in the back and so questions are immediately going to arise uh and rightfully so um, and so the book progresses from there, giving the reader, you get to experience as the reader, you know, what that officer's going through, what the detectives that are investigating uh, are seeing, uh, what the police leadership is seeing and doing, what the community uh, reaction is and what's happening there, what's happening at City Hall. And the question of that book really quickly becomes, you know, what what will the department what will the city do will they will they hang this guy out to dry uh sacrifice him on the altar of public opinion or will they stand by him as they discover you know what really happened uh, and then of course a couple of twists and turns come in that i won't spoil that really changed the complexity of that question and ultimately the entire series um, which as the series continues the latter three books uh, really become an examination of the whole concept of policing in in the U.S. and and some of the pitfalls that exist there, and it becomes about um, about how every character uh, and every person is is essentially gray, um, and and some are on the darker end of the scale, and some are on the very lighter end of the scale, uh, but nobody is completely one or the other. And you as the reader get to decide by the end of the, the series whether you're going to put that person in the good or the bad category based on what their actions have been uh, throughout the entire series. Um, and so this has been a question that's been on my mind, you know, for, for a lot of years, the idea of, uh, of policing in America and the community's uh, relationship with their police department. And, and we wanted to explore one aspect of it in this series. Um, but it's not a social essay. It's a, it's, they're, they're procedural thrillers. So there's a lot of tension. There's action. Uh, there's realistic events, although we get amp them up and, and, and blow them up like you do in fiction. Um, but if, if people want something gritty and realistic, then they're in the right place. I was going to say it is. And it's also really relevant. I mean, it's the kind of topic that people are talking about, people are concerned with. So there's that. I think so. I think so. And we, you know, we kind of flipped the script a little bit in that first book purposefully to perhaps put people back on their heels just a tiny bit so they might look at things differently. And and the, this was Colin's concept. And, and, and I really liked what he came up with. And that was, you know, this takes place in Spokane, Washington, which is a predominantly white city. Uh, the, and uh, and so the person who gets shot is white, uh, but Tyler Garrett, this model police officer that we're talking about, um, is black, and he's one of the few black officers on the department. And as often happens, um, uh, is is pretty much best practice in in the profession today. When an um, agency has an officer involved shooting, a another agency is the one that conducts the investigation. Um, and, and that's just, that's just good practice, but the home agency or the host agency, whatever you want to call them, uh, does assign a detective to shadow that investigation just to make sure that they do a good job and that they look into everything and that, 
you know, that they don't overlook anything. And, and so it's kind of creates this double transparency uh, situation. And in Charlie 316, the detective who is the shadow detective that's linked up with the sister agency detectives looking into this shooting um, is one of the few black detectives on, on the department. Um, and so race is definitely an issue that we explore in this uh, first book uh, as best as we can. Mm-hmm. Well, being an entertaining read at the same time, which is important. Which is always the primary goal. I mean, the, it, telling, yeah. telling a good story is the primary goal. Um, but we wanted to do even more than that. We wanted to get people thinking. Um, and, and, you know, if you get people thinking, then then maybe they're not relying on their own entrenched positions. Maybe they're thinking about a subject in a way that, that, uh, that can change that entrenched thinking, because that's certainly uh, what we have uh, in many places in America now is very, you know, people not looking for information, but looking for validation of their, or confirmation of their uh, pre-existing, you know, biases. And we wanted people, you know, try to maybe nudge people past that a little bit. So that's, that's a laudable goal. Um, and you've had the podcast since when? Um, I think 2018 is when I started the podcast. I'd have to go back uh-huh. and look. I'm in my fourth season, um, but the seasons were a little uneven to start with, but it runs from September to June. Um took the summers off to to spend more time with with my wife when she's out uh, out of school Um, and right now they drop weekly during that time period with uh, one feature episode a month that's about an hour long and then uh, the rest are open and shut episodes that uh, run about 15 or 20 minutes Hmm. and I talk mostly to people like you other crime fiction authors so it's uh, it's similar to the Crime Cafe in that regard, in that um, I, I try to talk to just folks who write mysteries, um, all, all, all subgenres, though. Um, I don't necessarily just find people who write what I write. I try to mix it up and, and, and talk to people who write cozies, who write thrillers, um, and even throw a few curveballs to people maybe that aren't even crime fiction writers. Well, that's cool. I think that's great. Um... Who handles the technical aspects of your podcast? Do you do all the work? It's a one-man show, yeah. Same here. (laughs) One woman, (laughs) whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take credit for anything that works out, and I'll blame it on the dog or the cat if something goes (laughs) wrong. (laughs) These things happen. Technology will let you down sometimes. Well, I'm not as brave as you are. I, I'm, I'm strictly audio, and and you've delved into the video uh, element, which I just think is uh, is very very ambitious, very brave. I, I don't, I'm not I'm not ready for that. <laughs> I'll stick with I, just uh, the audio. It's interesting. I I just decided why not, and I thought mm-hmm. this way I can just talk to people rather than trying right. to write everything down. <laughs> which is kind of nice. Um, let's see. There were other things I was going to ask you. Oh, have you, um, have you released any of your work in audiobook form? Um, yeah, 
Yeah, a good chunk of it is in audio. Um, I kind of jumped on the audio train, um, you know, like eight or nine years ago when uh, the royalty share arrangement was pretty popular on on ACX, on, on Audible. Um, more recently, um, after kind of learning about audio uh, technology and, and, and so forth, mastering and everything through uh, working on the podcast, I've started to delve into uh, recording and, and producing them myself. Uh, myself. So my trial run was uh, the short story collection, The Cleaner, where I narrated uh, all but two of the stories. And then, um, then my wife narrated two uh, flash uh, fiction stories that were from a, a, a female narrator. So I, I wanted to, to try that. And so that was kind of my first foray into that. And it, I mean, it, it, it passed quality control. It's, it's out there. Uh, <laughs> people want to give it a listen and I'm working on the uh, uh, sugar got low, which is my, my most recent short story collection. Uh, but for that one, I've, I've, I've been using multiple narrators. I think there's going to be like six or so different narrators, uh, including myself and Christy, but uh, another uh four or so different people that were chosen specifically for a specific story. So it's a collection, not an anthology, but from a narration standpoint, it's kind of like an anthology in that there'll be like seven different people narrating a total of 13 stories. Cool. Very cool. Uh, Let's see, where can people find you online? Um, Pretty easily. uh, FrankZafiro.com. Zafiro is Z-A-F-I-R-O is my website and pretty much everything is linked through there, the podcast, all of the books and, uh, and, and, and so forth. And appearances like this, I've got those uh, linked uh, under the, uh, uh, under a tab as well. So that's probably the best place uh, to find me, but my books are out there um, on Amazon and, and elsewhere as well. Have you ever considered crowdfunding a book? That's an interesting question. Um, have you done it? I have done it, actually, yeah. Well, I wouldn't say I would I've de- done it successfully, but I've <laughs> done it. I've raised some money. <laughs> well, I'll have to ask you what worked and what didn't in that regard. I actually have considered it um, for, um, you know, I write I write mainstream and uh, children's uh, fiction under my my given name. And uh, fantasy, uh, I'm branching out into fantasy under another pen name. And I have a, a project that I've started and I've been working on. Um, but uh, I, I thought about that idea of crowdfunding for the fantasy novel simply because I'd like to really invest in the art, uh, both in, in terms of the cover and the maps, and then maybe additionally uh, a, a you know, art inside the book and on the website. And, you know, that's more expensive than just a straightforward cover uh, because you're talking about, you know, uh, artists who are hand drawing something that's 100% unique versus maybe photo manipulation of existing images, which is still an art form that's beyond me. Um, And so I I thought maybe, you know, crowdfunding might be a way to go there, you know, get the money up front and, and, and really uh, go go big and get get some some really great art uh, in, involved in this because I'm pretty excited about the story itself, 
Um, but, uh, you know, fantasy is one of those um, genres, I think, where cover art and associated art is is more important. Um, you know, I mean, a mystery novel certainly needs a good cover, and people do decide whether to give your book a look or even a read based on the cover. So I'm not uh, diminishing its importance, but I, I feel like it has an even greater importance in the mystery genre. Uh, so, hey, maybe maybe I'll take your suggestion and run with it. <laughs> well, that's cool. I hope so, because I think that um, crowdfunding is not only a great way to potentially make money, um, and pay, pay back some of the costs of production, but to uh, develop a readership. Yeah. People are investing in your product mm -hmm. because they have a level of belief in it and can relate to it in some way. So I've been I've been on the other side of that. I've invested in in things. Uh, Same here. Uh, yeah. You know, various things. Never a book um, yet, but uh, uh, computer games and. Uh, card games or board games that I've been interested in that I, you know, I mean, if it looks like a cool idea, I'd like to see it come to fruition, you know, you support it and it, it gets there. And, and, and so it's, it's kind of fun to get that product at the end of it all. And you, you were part of it from the inception. And so there's that, that, you know, sense of belonging and that, you know, that, that, being a piece of the creation. And so I would expect that would carry over in, in a, in a book scenario as well. Absolutely. I would think so. Is there anything else you'd like to mention before we finish up? Um, boy, that's a loaded question. I, I, could, mention, <laughs> I could mention about 40 different things. Um, well, of course. <laughs> I just anything say that. related uh, to your book or your podcast. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'm I'm over a hundred episodes on the podcast now, so people can can find a lot of different authors, yourself included, um, in the back episodes. There, it's it's definitely worth a peek, and it's available on all all different platforms. Wherever you get your podcast, I can ninety nine percent guarantee that wrong place, right crime is there, and I think the same accessibility exists within um, within my published books. If you like procedurals i have the river city series you know the charlie 316 series if you like you know noir or hard-boiled uh the anya trilogy fits that the spoke compton series fits that if you like a little dark humor and action the the books i wrote with eric beatner the cam and the bricks and cam job series fit that i mean pretty much every subgenre of mystery except for cozy um i've got you covered and with my co-authors, um, what I don't have, they do. I mean, uh, Colin Conway writes a cozy series. Uh, Bonnie Paulson writes romance. So uh, between me and my co-authors, I, I, I dare say anything that's uh, remotely mystery. Um, I mean, Lawrence Kelter writes a, a novelization of the, of the My Cousin Vinny uh, books, uh, which, are, which are funny. So humor is, 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 you know, whatever you want, we've got it, you know, so uh, <laughs> dive in and, and, and click around and, and, and try whatever it is that you might like. Cool. Very cool. Well, Frank, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, and, thanks for, ha uh, thanks for having me. 
it's been fun talking to you and i always learn a lot from talking to authors <laughs> i tell you you guys are I, 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 yeah. full of great information um, yeah i i can i can attest to that being a host i you you learn something you never know what it's going to be but you learn something from every guest that's right yeah absolutely uh just best of luck with everything you're doing it's great well, thank you. And congratulations on your success with the Crime Cafe. I mean, when I reached out to you about coming back on at some point, I think you were almost a year out in your scheduling because it was in high <laughs> demand. So that's fantastic. Uh, congratulations. It's really not totally unexpected. I got to tell you that. <laughs> totally unexpected. Uh, I'm and, not surprised in the least. <laughs> well, thank you. And just so you know, everyone... We'd greatly appreciate your giving the Crime Cafe Patreon page a look. Uh, you can see that I offer a variety of perks for supporters of the podcast there, including shout-outs on social media, podcast mentions, and credit as a producer or associate producer, depending on your level of support. So please don't miss that. Uh, you'll find the link on my website. You can also find it in the show notes to this podcast. And I will be back in two weeks with another guest, another author. In the meantime, happy reading. 